Hi, and welcome back to the We Do Science podcast, the podcast of the Institute of Performance Nutrition. I am the host, of course, and I am Dr. Laurent Bannock, for those of you that have not yet listened to this podcast. Today, I have just had a really fascinating conversation with Dr. Nikki Kay, who is both a clinician, a medical doctor, but also a practitioner, researcher, and academic working in a number of areas, but in particular, this topic that we're going to delve into today, which is relative energy deficiency, not just in sport, for reasons that you'll learn today, although it is abbreviated as REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. They had to come up with a title and that was the one, but of course it applies to active people who could be described as athletes by virtue of levels of activity. But of course, that does not just apply to sports. It could be performing artists, recreational exercises, a wide variety of people where this concept of an energy deficiency is of particular value. And this is the conversation that we get into in great detail today. Although we could have delved very much into sort of the meaty science, which I've done in previous podcasts with Dr. Kirsty Elliott-Sale, Dr. Jose Areta, Dr. James Morton, of course, and a wide variety of other experts that I've talked to over the years who I don't want to leave out. And I will link those podcasts to the show notes so you can uh, sort of get that wider sort of set of resources as it relates to this theme, this sort of body of knowledge that we're accumulating here on this podcast on this this area of relative energy deficiency, you'll find that on the website. Just go to www.theiopn.com and click on podcast. You'll find that there. So what we did is we sort of discussed what actually is energy deficiency. You know, does it affect males? Does it affect females only? Uh, what about athletes? What about dancers? And this really interesting area of whether it's an intentional or an unintentional process. How do you recognize relative energy deficiency? Is that something that can be done in the lab? Is that something only a medical doctor does? Or is that something that we as sort of performance nutritionists, dietitians, or even personal trainers, for example, might be able to play a role in? We discussed that in detail. You know, what are the issues that relate to the consequences, the impact, if you like, of being in a relative energy deficiency state? Why does that even matter? What are the physiological and clinical sort of outcomes of that situation. We talk a lot about this in general, but we also managed to spend some time on her research on dancers specifically and also on road cyclists. And, you know, what did the research find and what are the take-home messages from that? So I don't really want to tease you further. I'll just let you listen to the show in a minute, the conversation that we recorded. But just before I do, please do come and check our website out at theiopn.com, where you can also learn about our 100% online diploma in performance nutrition, which is a practice-focused training program, advanced level training in applying the science to practice, a well-recognized program internationally, and is all about enabling you or helping you to become highly effective practitioners in the real world, so to speak. You can also, of course, learn about our podcast and access the new 
We Do Science podcast website, which has a whole range of upgraded resources to include not just some edited versions of these podcasts, but also transcripts. So you don't have to listen. You can also read or combine the listening and reading together. I hope you find those of great value. Those are going to be applied to all new upcoming episodes and a number of select past episodes. If there's any particular past episodes you'd love to have me upgrade, get edited and get transcripts uh, created for just... uh, you know, do a, a message to me on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, email me via the website and just let me know. I'll, I'll do my best to add that to the list of upgrades. And we have a variety of other resources on our websites. Just go check that out. So I won't blab on. I won't waffle on here any further. I'll let you enjoy this conversation I have with Dr. Nikki Kay. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And my guest today is Dr. Nikki Kay. Dr. Nikki Key, did I get it right? Dr. Nikki Kay. Great. Yeah, I didn't prompt you before we started recording, so I nervously attempt people's names. So I'm pleased I got that one. So thank you for giving up some of your valuable time today, Nikki. I know you're super busy. As you know, I have bumped into you at various conferences and I've heard you speak, always been fascinated by your work. Uh, And I know you have various areas of expertise, which we're going to delve in today as a clinician and as an academic, as a researcher, which is, I think, a particularly valuable combination, particularly for this conversation today. But before we jump into what I wanted to talk about, perhaps you could just give us a quick introduction to yourself and what you're up to. Sure. Well, listen, first of all, thanks for inviting me. And likewise, you know, uh, as we were saying earlier, we've heard each other speak at various events. So it's good to sort of meet, well, virtually face to face. So, yeah, as you say, I'm a, a medical doctor by training, but I've always had a particular interest in how that medical knowledge applies to exercise, whether that's an athlete or a dancer or whatever level of exercise you're doing, that's always fascinated me because the things, why do you get fitter if you exercise or dance, whatever you do, why do you improve over time? And actually those adaptations, positive adaptations are driven by hormones. So that's particularly my focus and where my interest really, really lies. What's going on internally inside or not. (laughs) I mean, the things that can happen inside in terms of your hormones to both drive the positive adaptations and therefore also on the other side, what happens when that goes wrong? When for whatever reason, those hormones aren't up to speed and maybe you can't get those benefits. So that's really in a nutshell what I'm about, what I'm interested in. And as you say, both clinically, I see athletes and dancers, you know, with issues and also, you know, research along the way as well. Yeah, I actually, I'm really pleased you mentioned that business of, you know, when things go wrong, because I, and I mentioned this to you just before we started speaking, an area that I find particularly interesting, because my work and my personal interests are largely about trying to get this information that comes from the scientific studies, from textbooks, from journal papers, and bringing that into the real world, where we can help our athletes, our clients, get the results that they're after. But it isn't always that idealistic process of let's turn this person into an Olympian. Let's turn this person into the greatest, you know, dancer in the world. And how can our respective 
you know, skills and expertises influence that because that's all very, uh, well, that's almost a reductionist sort of view of these things. It, you know, the reality is, is that we live in, and, you know, right now it's really obvious yeah. how crazy, chaotic, Challenging, uh, yeah. you know, things can be. And also to tailor it for the individual. Indeed. When we say, oh, to be a really good dancer, it's like, you know, unfortunately, not all of us <laughs> can be, you know, like Darcy Bustle. I mean, I know she's now retired, but, you know, not all of us can that's the way it is. Yeah. Be an Olympian, win an Olympic medal. But, you know, it's all about your personal best. What is it, you know, is it you want to win your age group or is it you just want to take part? So also matching up your aims and expectations to, you know, tailoring. That's what you want to achieve. So how are you going to achieve that? But also making sure you're actually not aiming, well, unless you are truly able to get an Olympic gold, that's obviously, that's fine. But whatever it is you're trying to achieve and what you you need personally as an individual, because we're all, although we've all got the same blueprint of physiology, more or less, you know, there are, having said that, there are vast variations between individuals. And so Mm. it's all about the personalized approach, I think. Yeah, well, that, I mean, Cool. That's a hornet's nest of, of, <laughs> of areas to get into. And I guess that's that's almost a holy grail for some people, isn't it? Is that concept of, well, are we able to identify those that can make it all the way to being an Olympian or a top ballet dancer or whatever? And of course, for a lot of people, it comes back to basic things like just being lucky enough to get into the scenarios where they can meet a coach. I mean, there's always luck involved in anything. Yeah. But being as prepared as possible so that when you do hopefully have that opportunity, yeah, you're in a good position to, you know, get in there. Otherwise, you're not prepared, even if you do have all the luck in the world. All the luck in the world will not win you a gold medal. You know what I mean? So you have to control what you can control. We can't control everything, but you just right. have to focus on what, and as you say, especially in these strange times, you can spend a lot of time worrying about uncertainty, but actually when all said and done, the only thing, the only option is to, as I say, take control, you know, those things that you can, but make sure you are taking control of the things that are in a good way. Yes. Yeah. Well, positive way there you go. and yeah. not, you know, maybe in an obsessive over the top way, but anyway, that's also. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, that's relevant to this conversation because that's something that I talk about a lot is my concept that I like to talk about is my sort of, the thing I live by is the question you must ask yourself before you you do something and that is you can but should you you know i can do this but should i do it you know there are strengths and weaknesses there are pros and cons there's you know there's limitations to things but that requires knowledge skills training and often when you look at research into expertise for example when they look at top surgeons one thing that can differentiate a truly master of that aspect of surgery, for example, from somebody who's just competent is often when knowing not to do something, you know, when to cut something, I guess. or, or uh, And that you make a very good point, because I remember yeah. when I was deciding, I snapped my crochet a couple of years back skiing, as one does. Yeah. And, you know, the surgeon that I actually decided to go with was the one that wasn't sharpening his scalpel. Yeah. I mean, as it turned out, I was actually looking for surgery, but I wanted to be guided through all the stages. You know, there is the no surgery option. What happens then? Then there is this option. So having all those options open 
And one of them might be actually a null thing. Actually, yeah. no, don't change anything or don't do it. That's equally, uh, you know, that can also be a positive decision. Yeah. Do you find, and this is not entirely off topic, but do you find in that scenario, the surgeon's like, oh my God, she's a doctor. She's a specialist in sports. No, no, no. I would think, yeah. I mean, especially that's what I always say, especially surgery, because that definitely is not my field. Mm. But, you know, when I go to the GP, I want to be treated as a patient. I know that sounds weird, but, you know, I I'm don't sure. want to be, yeah. I want to be taken through all the steps. Yeah. Because it's different. In fact, I was discussing this this morning. You know, it's easy as a doctor. I'm very good at, uh, you know, discussing reds and helping people. But actually, then when you turn the the mirror back on yourself, it's like, oh, actually, now that's really uncomfortable. I'm not so sure. I'm, you know, so yeah, for sure. It's always good to have an outside objective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this is relevant to this because the reason for these conversations with experts such as yourself in the areas, for example, that we're going to get into today is because what we're trying to do is to truly understand this information before we try and use our whatever our understanding of that topic is to influence, in this case, a client's nutritional programming or you know research or whatever that pertains to this area. And I think a lot of people misunderestimate you know, where they lie in terms of their actual knowledge and understanding of that particular topic. And I think some people jump in because they're over-enthusiastic about something. They go, oh, it's reds or FODMAPs or whatever topic you're finding yourself fascinated in. And you start throwing that at your clients. And, you know, you, you just need to be careful about whether or not you truly understand this. So that's well, I wanted to talk to you today about one area that you're well known for being an expert in, which of course is in relative energy deficiency, but not just in sport. I find sport is a word that's quite limiting. That's why I like performance nutrition as opposed to sports nutrition. And I find your work, for example, you know, in this area with performing artists like dancers for example particularly interesting and I have a personal reason for that and that's because a very long time ago I had the opportunity to do some work in a more health and fitness nutrition before I became properly trained and qualified with the Rambert Dance Company oh yeah yeah and uh, I had uh, you know this is a long time ago but I had an insider's view of what went on in you know in those companies and what the you know the dancers went through and the you know, the stress and the strain and the impact of, you know, the coaches will call them. I mean, it's fascinating to get inside of that scenario and you truly see a humanistic angle here, which is very different from just a participant in a research study. There's so much more to that person and the environment that they live and, you know, enact their lifestyle, which of course, for example, is for an athlete training or competition or for a dancer, you know, they've got their equivalents, but they've also got life and they've, you know, they live with themselves. They live mm. with people. They have relationships. They've got, you know, hang ups. They've got all sorts of things going on. And there's nothing more interesting than that to me in how that actually influences things like eating behaviors, which of course affects performance and health. And we know that there's Mm. a lot of peer group in a sort of um, quite a tight environment. And of course, you know, you're going to compare and look who's eating what and, and, you know, 
So definitely it's a rarefied atmosphere, whether that's a dancer or an athlete in those training groups, you know, which is a good thing. On the one hand, that's a great thing. They can, you know, you can support each other and whatever, but equally there is a downside to that, that anything negatives can also start to, you know, disperse. But I think going back also to what you say about sport, I mean, the reason it's called REDS, Relative Energy Efficiency in Sport, is because, frankly, the acronym would be way too long if we said (laughs) sport, dance, and any other type of activity. But because I often see a lot of people who almost apologize to me. They come to see me and they say, oh, I'm not an athlete and I'm not a dancer. I'm just going to the gym twice a day and uh you know all this other thing it's like listen that definitely counts as a high level exerciser in the terms that you're doing a lot so that's the problem with any label but you know it's there just for convenience really yeah yeah well fortunately the bulk of our listeners are going to be pretty clued up and we've over the last couple of years, had some fantastic guest experts like Kirsty Elliott-Sale, Jose Aretta, yeah. and loads of others that have gotten one way or other into this topic. I think the first chat that spoke about this actually as it related to men was James Morton, for example. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, almost seven years ago when we started this podcast, in the very first podcast I did, he had mentioned you know, that it's not just about females and so on. But right, we've got lots of things to get into. Let's just quickly do a few definitions and so on so that everyone's on the same page. Perhaps you could just give us, from your perspective, an overview of what actually is REDS. So REDS stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, although, as we said, other things as well. Mm -hmm. And so there are a few important words there, relative and energy and deficiency. So obviously you get all the energy you need from your diet. So what you put in your mouth, that's partitioned and it's prioritized the energy to cover training demand. So whatever type of exercise you're doing, you're dancing, you're running, whatever, that part of your energy intake, that gets hived off over there. And then the residual energy, what's left over, that's what's called energy availability. So as the name suggests, it's available to cover other energy demands in the body, of which there are many. Because even if you just lie in bed all day, if only, you know, then that takes a lot of energy because after all, we're warm blooded for a start, right? Also, we're digesting, we're respiring, you know, all those life processes, excreting, et cetera, et cetera. So that takes a lot of energy. And then on top of that, there are other things that people wouldn't necessarily classify as exercise, but, you know, like walking around at work or just sort of day-to-day activities of just, you know, making a cup of coffee or something, that's going to take a little bit of everyday of, you know, what they call it, activities of uh, daily living. So uh, I think people underestimate that energy availability, you need a sizable chunk. So if you haven't got enough of that, if there are two ways you could end up in low energy availability, either You've got such a high training demand, like the cyclists who are training hours and hours per day. You know, there's such a big drain on your food intake from your output through your exercise. Then that obviously could lead you up in low energy availability. And those are more what I call the unintentional ones, where it is because they've got a very high training load or they've gone away on a training camp or, you know what I mean, whatever it is, something like that. They've got a really big demand. On the other hand, you could have more the intentional low energy availability person who is in weight dependent sport or a gravitational sport 
climbing is one. Uh, cycling, of course, is uh, road cycling is gravitational and also athletic sports, diving. And also we bring in here dancers. That's obviously athletic. So those groups of people might be more inclined to intentionally restrict what they're taking in in the first place. But they're still doing all their training. So that all gets you know burnt off. And then the residual energy now is low. So that's low energy availability. So that's what energy availability is, the energy you have available for physiological processes and low energy availability when that is below what you need personally. And you could either be the unintentional sort or the intentional one. So there we go. That's that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's an important distinction, isn't it? Is that it is going to be intentional, which takes you down one path potentially of how you would manage that and the unintentional lot. And the reason why I'm differentiating here, of course, is, you know, if I look at this from the perspective as being a practitioner, so I'm not a lay person in this area, but then again, I'm not a clinician. I might have doctor in front of my name, but that's not because I'm a medical doctor. So, you know, we live in a gray area as practitioners, as nutritionists. And of course, this is an area where I feel that having quite a lot of knowledge on it is useful because we need to understand our scope of practice in this area and when and when not we can, you know, play a role in how we recognize and deal with the next steps of you like of how we're supposed to deal with this or how, you know, our recommendations to our athletes. Yes, because I think you're right there that if it's the unintentional person, those are very straightforward. When I say straightforward, relatively so because you haven't got the psychological aspect of it. So I've had several of those cyclists, for example, where they simply did not realize that they, you know, being out on the bike for four hours, they had put maybe a banana in their back pocket, but they haven't put enough bananas or enough, uh, you know, cereal bars or whatever it was. So they just literally did not register and didn't realize or hadn't had taken on enough fuel beforehand or hadn't taken on enough fuel afterwards. So those are the unintentional ones. And as I say, there isn't, a psychological overlay to those sometimes it's just literally the mechanics of it there's a mistiming mm. so that's you know that's okay but the ones that the intentional one you're right that's where it gets a little bit more complex because mm. it's like mm, why are you doing this in the first place and it's easy enough to give someone some mechanical <laughs> advice like eat this you know at this time you know like that but actually if they're going to then have this massive psychological barrier to do that, even if they manage to do that for a bit, then if you haven't found out why that was happening in the first place, it's just going to keep recurring. So those ones are more tricky and complex. Yeah. And that's what I find interesting when you're looking at these different types of athletes, whether it's their intention to manipulate their diet to arrive at a given outcome, which might be getting that gold medal, you know, those are very strong drivers and you can become very blinkered. And that's perhaps a skill set that is advantageous maybe to an Olympic athlete is that ability to, <laughs> is to not want the sweets and the chocolates and the treats because the goal at the end is worth, you mm. know, missing out on those things. Whereas for others, it might be, you know, they've become obsessed with their body composition. I remember a, a few years ago, we published a case study on reducing infection incidents in a Premier League football player. And on the analysis of that player's diet, it turned out the reason why they kept getting these URTIs was because they were in a state of energy deficiency right. because they were, you know, missing, cutting out carbs, missing yeah. out breakfasts because they were obsessed 
by their body composition and the impact on their performance and their health became, you know, the consequence of that. So I guess there's an indirect sort of victim there. And then of course, you know, what I saw in those dancers, which was a whole, you know, there's almost a fear factor, but what about those sorts of areas? Yeah. Well, you see, it's um, the more intentional reds person by their nature that there's a reversible arrow of the psychology and reds. So the reason that you might become one of these restrictive eaters or exercise dependent types is because guess what? That's your personality, you know, and that's why actually you're good at sport or dancing or good in, you know, in life, it's laudable to be driven, focused, all those things, but it's when that becomes misdirected. So now they're rather than thinking about doing these things so they can improve performance well, they believe they are improving their performance, but, but they've kind of gone about it in a wrong way, if you see what I mean. They've gone yes. off track and tried to take control of something that they feel really they can take control of. I can take control of reducing my carbs. I can take control by increasing my training load, which they perceive as being positive things. But actually, like you say, then we get into the vicious circle. So they start going off kilter like this, but now they're in this situation of low energy availability. So they haven't got enough energy in the system to you know have a good immunity etc to drive the positive adaptations to their exercise and also if you're in low energy availability actually you know your cognitive function becomes a little bit impaired there are mm. studies to show that and so actually now you're not in, you don't make a good call so now you're convinced you're right generally <laughs> that mm. you know you're pursuing the right way and if you don't see the improvements in performance then you misinterpret that as you haven't tried hard enough Yes. So I should restrict more. I should exercise more. So now you get more and more in a vicious circle. So you're right. Then it become it potentially can as it become a vicious circle, spiral out of control, whatever word you want to use, and trying to get someone to steer them back to the more balanced approach. That's really tricky. Yeah, that's it's a fascinating area. The sort of behavioural compensatory mechanisms that are based on perception or, yep. or belief, and that's why you know I think we have a potentially positive or a destructive role if we don't understand how we're feeding those perceptions. For example, you know, any of the listeners that have been performance nutritionists or registered dietitians or personal trainers or whatever, who've had a client, you know, feel that they're doing relatively well on their nutrition and training program until they stand on the scales and despite the fact that their clothes are looser and they mm. appear better in the mirror from an aesthetic perspective, the number on that scale just shoves a massive spanner in the works yeah, again. It's, I call yeah. it the weighty problem. Uh, yeah. You know, it's after all, it's just a number on a scale. And what does that number on the scale? It just tells you what Earth's gravity happens to be that day. Yes. I mean, we could go up to the moon and obviously it'll be a different number. But yes. does that suddenly change who you are? Well, I mean, I know you'd have had to go on a rocket, so probably it would have actually. <laughs> anyway, but, you know, yeah. it literally, or you went into, you know, an anti-gravity room or something, yeah. and now you've got a different number. Yeah. yeah. What relative, how. Yeah. That, different set of scales, different time of day before all and that after eating. I know. Oh, yeah, a different yeah. set of scales. And, you know. During the menstruation, there, away from menstruation. Yeah, all those sorts one. of things. Yeah. So, But it's funny. It's easy enough to get so, obsessed by one thing, isn't it? So, Nikki, where I'm going with that then is from a recognition perspective, I know the scientists in, you know, in our audience here are going to be going, well, you know, rather than just recognizing this through 
you know, symptoms and discussion and so on. Is there some sort of diagnostic process, number one? And I guess there's a way of, well, how do you determine energy deficiency from a research perspective? How do you determine it from a clinical perspective? And people like me who don't have necessarily either of those you know, opportunities, how am I supposed to recognize and not diagnose, but, you know, get close yeah, to that Recognize point. it, the, the mm. warning signs. Mm. Well, yes, I mean, if we, if you want to measure it in the lab, you know, fine, but that's tricky. I mean, in the sense that it's possible, but it's just complicated. And realistically, we can't get everyone going around weighing their food and, you know, all this thing. Um, so, and Louise Burke herself, who is sort of, you know, one of the great researchers in this field, you know, she talks about measuring in the free living athlete, as she puts it, mm. because, you know, how are you going to take account for, oh, that time that they walked to the kettle to make a cup of coffee or something? If you want to do it really precisely, it's difficult. So, you know, you can measure it. It's true. But then even if you did measure it, say you did do all this weighing and, you know, metabolic rate, what's your lean body mass from a deck? So pretend you did all, all that. Now you come a get a figure. It's a bit like the number on the scales. It's like, well, what the heck does that mean? Mm. What does it mean for a male or a female? What does it mean for you personally as an individual? I mean, we know that there have been studies in women showing that when the energy availability reaches a certain level threshold, even we don't not so keen about saying exactly threshold because it sounds like this absolute line in the sand. But yeah. we know, of course, recognize that then hormone problems do occur. But it's, you know, again, it's exactly like the weight on the scale. What's the relevance of that number that you get for that person? So it's fine in the research setting, very interesting and all that. So we'll leave that there. So probably the more practical way is something like a screening questionnaire. So there's the Leaf Q, which is for female athletes. We're just developing something specifically for dancers, a questionnaire for dancers. And then also we did with male cyclists. Maybe I'm thinking that probably it's better to make it sports specific mm. because it would be a turn off. You as a male cyclist sat down and looked at a questionnaire that's talking about periods and stuff. It's like, well, or talking about dancing, you know, it's like, mm. and the same for a dancer. They don't want to be asked about, you know, their cycle training or something so and it's important to take that into account in the assessment you know about the training and sort of things so I think that realistically in the practical way a questionnaire to filter out the people but also you're saying other people recognizing that like the coaches you know even teammates things like that noticing that a teammate is not necessarily even I mean thin probably isn't always the big discriminating thing but even then their mood and their personality and avoiding eating and, and avoiding interaction so you know there are plenty of warning signs and then there's the questionnaire and then ultimately it does have to come down to a medical diagnosis because it's a diagnosis of exclusion because you know there are some days when we do feel bad right mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah I'm feeling a bit tired this morning but I'm not immediately going to assume it's and I had a bad night's sleep but I'm not going to assume it's because reds because actually I'm still recovering from COVID, by the way, or what other stuff, you know, the, so yeah. the medical diagnosis bit, and as doctors, the thing we always do, we take a clinical history, which is like a screening questionnaire, but only in more detail. And it's easier to put in a little bit more of the psychological overlay. So you, you gather all the information, you know, how much exercise are they doing? Are they avoiding certain food groups? You know, what's going on for them? And then ultimately it comes down also to doing some blood tests because for females, a big red flag is no periods 
right? But there can be many reasons for no periods. Some medical ones that you need to just cross off the list and say, okay, fine, it's not that. And then we move on. Mm. So that's, you always have to do a blood test. And for the men, it's also useful. Well, for anybody, men and women that you suspect clinically have this, then getting a blood test just to see what's going on with the hormones, what's going on inside. Does that correlate to your clinical impression? And also sometimes for those that have a bone stress injury or a previous history of bone stress injury, then obviously, and a long time of amenorrhea, for example, then also you might be thinking about getting a DEXA just to see what's going on with the bone health. And there is, the IOC has published, it's called the REDSCAT, it's a clinical assessment tool, and there are like little columns. It's like a traffic light thing, green, Mm. amber, red. And really, we want to be picking up the people in the amber section. I mean, if they're in red, they should frankly be in hospital. Yeah. If they're green, they're good to go. They Maybe they're just not feeling that great because maybe, you know, they are overtrained. Maybe they have got glandular fever. You know, there's maybe there's actually something else. But the ones that actually there are some warning signs from the clinical history, from your screening questionnaire, from bloods that actually, and the DEXA, those are the ones we're trying to pick up in terms of who's at risk of reds. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That was great. And yeah, I guess from a nutritionist, dietitian's perspective, we should be pretty well trained to recognize if they're clearly in a state of energy sufficiency, as long as we're monitoring their diets appropriately. But like you say, it's that, you know, where's the line in the sand? And of course, with elite performers, elite athletes, and we're not living with them, and, you know, it does get tricky and difficult, doesn't it? So that's why I think those sort of markers of recognition that you've pointed out are really helpful and I like the way that you mentioned that there are people around these people so we're not just trying to educate and inform the athlete it's people that are with them like their coaches and their families I guess I mean what are the sorts of people you think that need to be in their sort of community of awareness if you like on this topic yeah well I mean teammates for a start if you notice that actually you know this person is really fatigued but I think actually a lot on the coach and recently I've done a course for coaches to look out the warning signs of reds in athletes because the coaches they will know the athlete or we're talking about you know the dance teacher will know get to know that person and actually if you know they are turning up all the time really fatigued you know just not looking great then you know that's a warning sign from the coach but of course for the parents For the youngsters, the parents obviously will notice if there's something going on with the younger athlete. So I think we all have a role to play. And the sooner these things are picked up on, the better. And I think the coaches shouldn't, you know, it's credit to them if they spot it and, you know, are alert to it. And I work and I've got a good relationship with many coaches who are absolutely on the ball, by the way, with this. And I've, you know, they say, actually, I'm not worried. I'm a bit worried about this athlete, you know. Her periods have stopped or she's got a little bit, you know, or the athlete, actually, they're complaining of sore shins. You're thinking bone stress injury. And I'm not sure what's going on about their nutrition or something like this. And so I think coaches are the majority are on the ball, but obviously more to be done. So I think we all have a role to play in this. And ultimately, I can do all the medical thing, but I can only see the people who (laughs) who are sent to me, as it were. You know, I'm not going out there in the general population looking around. And I mean, it is a fun game as a doctor. You go out and you spot some, you make a spot diagnosis. But, you know, anyway, joking aside, you know, it's everyone's, everyone has the opportunity to play their part. Actually, I think the hardest thing is recognizing it in yourself. Yes, of course. 
So that's yes. actually, you are relying on others. Yes. I mean, also sometimes people do, you know, just take a moment, just sit down. It's like actually, and being honest with yourself is actually probably the hardest. <laughs> yeah, well, that's or, the tricky one, isn't it, Nikki? Because, you know, athletes or highly active people that we would still describe as an athlete aren't just in communities like a team a lot of athletes are on their own you know ultra endurance athletes are a good example of people yep, who that's a very good point. who I've worked a lot with who spend huge amounts of times on their own and I'm also thinking of you know like Ironman triathletes or whatever you know absolutely are athletes they're just not necessarily professional athletes but they're you well, know there are but... yeah and that's, that's a very good point you make yeah. and that is probably the hardest of all if you're mm. a solo trainer as it were but even solo trainers will have some, hopefully, <laughs> some yeah. contact with people. Maybe they've got a partner. Maybe they've got some friends. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and even friends can say, oh, actually, we haven't seen you for a while, yeah. you know, or what's going on, you know. So, yeah, ultimately. What's well, in their best interest, isn't it? And I think with these people where the obsession ultimately is about, winning the races or doing as well as they can. I think what helps, and this is sort of the next step of this conversation is, okay, look, relative energy deficiency is real. It happens. There are quite a lot of people, more than people imagine dealing with this situation, but why does it even matter? I mean, what are the actual consequences of this? Well, first of all, the sad thing about it is that ultimately the person, why is the person doing this anyway? Hmm. And, in most cases, it's because they think they perceive it as a performance advantage. And it's true. At first, they actually might pull off a few good performances, races. But as time goes on, it's just not sustainable. So that's the main significant consequence for the person. They're just going to underperform. They're never going to reach their personal full potential. So that's probably the most relevant thing for the person themselves yeah. to realize that. But in terms of health-wise, I mean, we mentioned psychological effects because hormones are super important for neurotransmitters. So, you know, mood, low mood, um, or just mood changes, anxiety, all this sort of thing. But in terms of physical, I mean, for the women, we've already mentioned the red flag of no periods. So amenorrhea, primary or secondary amenorrhea. So period switching off for more than six months. That's an obvious big red flag that that could be due to red so that you need to get that checked out the equivalent in men is a little bit tricky i mean i suppose we have to talk about morning erections mm -hmm. you know how many per week and if it's you know <laughs> not many then that could be a sign that the testosterone is low sleep for both for men and women by the way well, everything from now on is for men and women okay mm -hmm. so disrupted sleep poor sleep because if you haven't got enough energy on board particularly carbohydrate then literally you're going to wake up because your body's saying, hey, I'm hungry, where's some food? Also gastrointestinal problems, which is a very interesting one, especially in the women I'm finding. Mm. Lots of athletes, dancers come and say, oh, I think I've got IBS, or I've told I've got IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And so therefore, they have been put on a FODMAP diet, or they think they should restrict something or whatever. But the problem is, they're not eating very much in the first place which is actually why they have gastric problems, because there isn't enough energy for the process of digestion, you see. And so actually what they, they need to be doing the exact opposite. They do need to be eating a bit more to get the digestive system going, because literally gastric motility slows down, uh, you know, it takes energy to absorb your food. So that's actually a very interesting one. Gastrointestinal issues, bone health, we mentioned, of course, you know, the sex steroids, those being low, along with the thyroid hormones, 
then you know poor bone mineral density means bone stress injuries ranging from just like painful to a stress fracture you know anywhere on that spectrum what else have we not done oh uh, cardiovascular health even in women especially there are good studies to show that low estrogen levels with associated with amenorrhea this causes cardiovascular problems in terms of autonomic control of blood pressure and things like this and lipid profile. In fact, I tend to kind of slightly avoid doing a lipid profile in someone I suspect with REDS because I know what it's going to show. Hmm. It's not going to be great. And then the person misinterprets that, that, oh, I'm eating too much fat. It's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Anyway, so immunity, you already mentioned immunity. So lowered immunity, more illness, infection, obviously not a good thing to have. I mean, everything you care to really, oh, actually a very interesting one I just thought of, sort of to do with neuromuscular skills. So amenorrheic athletes, they have a reduced reaction time and peak power production. And that if you remember the females that might be at risk of getting reds are, guess what, dancers and gymnasts and all these people who, where balance is crucial. Hmm. And now if your balance isn't so good and you fall over, your bone density isn't good, You've still got to, it's not going to end well. So, I mean, literally every system in the body needs sufficient energy to take over, like we said at the beginning, energy availability. And by the way, just to really hammer the point home, uh, you know, what happens when you have low energy availability? The body tries to adapt. The body tries to make a new set point Mm -hmm. to try and save energy, just as your phone would do. It goes into the power saving mode. Okay. So same thing for the body. Everything down regulates. And this includes your metabolic rate. So thyroid function tests, I've got very used to looking at these. I look at them, boom, and like all three, TSH, control, T4, thyroxine, T3, they are all low end of the range. That's not an underactive thyroid. It's not a primary underactive thyroid. Yeah. Okay. What's happened is it's been switched off from the top, from the hypothalamic pituitary axis, which is where the switch off occurs, by the way, because all the metabolic stress, all the psychological stress, that all gets fed into the hypothalamus. And that switches off everything, whether we're talking about the sex steroid pathways for the males and females, whether we're talking about the thyroid axis, that all gets turned down, growth hormone, IGF-1 goes down, and you know, everything's down apart from cortisol, because it's your body's stress, so cortisol goes up. And cortisol, although it's great to have some cortisol, obviously, to help you wake up in the morning, sort of unvarying high-ish levels of cortisol perpetuate this vicious circle again. Yeah. They prevent the conversion of T4 to T3. And also cortisol also tends to favor fat storage, which we go back to the ironic situation. The athlete or dancer in the very first place thought that, oh, by restricting what I'm eating and training more, I might lose weight or I might change my body composition. But in fact, studies have shown that, yes, at first, of course, that happens. But then actually it starts to go the other way. I mean, not that you would not putting on weight, but in the terms of your weight, just plateaus because your metabolic rate's gone down. But the person misinterprets that they have to restrict more. But also for the body composition, and you probably know more than me about this, that the body composition, actually, you in that situation, that stress situation of high cortisol and low metabolic rate, actually, you're more likely to put on fat than muscle. So the person, again, yes, you're nodding, uh, the person gets very frustrated. Oh, it must be because I'm not really, really restricting. So it just it just self-perpetuates, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And that's why I, I try and push this message of, you know, trying to understand enough about this to understand it. 
and it's those pros and cons, you know, and like I said, you know, you can, but should you? And yes, you talk about body composition and people get obsessed with the term energy balance, but of course, energy balance is a complex area as it relates to body composition and, you know, things like energy availability and fat balance rather than energy balance and the various mechanisms that influence that. And absolutely what is interesting is in a state of energy restriction, particularly chronic energy restriction is the compensatory mechanisms that, you know, occur within metabolism. And I've explored these with numerous experts over the years. And I would refer listeners back to Professor Dylan Thompson's podcast with me and James Betts, where we've got, and Javier Gonzalez, actually, we've gone into that stuff in great detail. It is fascinating and it is a self-defeating process. Absolutely. Exactly. exactly. Self-perpetuating. It is. Yeah. Okay. So let's just move forwards from here then. And also, well, okay. So we've explored relative energy deficiency in sports performance in various areas in society, whether it's recreational athletes, elite athletes, uh, performers, and so on. I think an area that I do find of interest is sort of where you've been doing some of your research of late. So I thought we'd delve into that since uh, we've been talking for some time now. But if we contextualize this into specific groups, so you did a study very recently on the awareness and indicators of low energy availability in male and female dancers. And we've, you know, we've referred to them and cyclists, which we'll come to next. But tell us a bit more about that research and what were sort of the main things that came out of that, that we can learn from that well, research? In my old age, I'm getting more into psychology <laughs> <laughs> because actually, you know, it's the reason why are dancers more likely to end up in low energy availability apart from the obvious mechanics okay Mm. fine they're not you know fueling enough but why are they not fueling enough I mean for sure there are physical aspects it's you know physically difficult if you're performing to you know fuel after a late performance and, and you know it's yeah okay so given that there are those restraints and restrictions and and difficulties you know but what's driving that type of behavior anyway and what I found from that study is that there's a very the correlation between anxiety about missing class, anxiety about shape and weight, and those actually feed into the physical outcomes, which was what I found fascinating, that, you know, the drive for thinness, that this actually manifests itself physically. It's like, wow. <laughs> So not just because you're eating less, but just because, you know, that mindset of, so that's really in a nutshell, what the whole point of that uh, research was to sort of see, you know, what is going on here? Why are dancers at risk because of the nature of the dancing? And also these, as we said, the self-perpetuating anxieties, concerns, you know, self-esteem, all this sort of thing that is driving them to where they could be in low energy availability. And if they're in low energy availability, manifest by all the physical things we discussed, no periods, et cetera, poor sleep, all this sort of thing, then that effectively is REDS because low energy availability is the condition. And then REDS is the clinical outcome. So you have low energy availability, everything is downregulating, and we've got you know, clinical signs of that. And then the outcomes are REDS. So some people, it's like, I only kind of 
<laughs> recently myself, I have to say, really formulated this in my own mind. So labor energy availability is that's the process. That's what's happening in physiological terms, hormone terms. And then the outcomes, the clinical outcomes are what REDS is, the stress fractures, you know, the poor sleep, all those things. And so that's really what that study was all about. And also the use of how I assess this was a, a questionnaire format, one of these identification questionnaires, if you will. So it was kind of like the leaf. And in fact, I was asked, why don't you just use the leaf? It's like, yeah, I have to be honest. And I did borrow quite a lot of the questions on the leaf because <laughs> those are validated questionnaires, et cetera. But I then put in some, like you say, context, some context for the dancer, you know, do you think you'll dance better if you're lighter? Do you think you'll get a better role? You know, do you feel anxious if you can't do class? All these things I added in those elements of dance to give it a little bit more flavor, context. And so I'm hoping that as a result of this study, number one, to, you know, clarify, yes, dancers are at risk, but also actually to say, you know, proactively, you were saying, how do we identify people? And I said, the most is a practical questionnaire is the way to go. And this could be something that could be done. This study was for dancers entering pre-professional training or professionals. So, you know, at that stage, if you can do a questionnaire and spot those ones that are at risk early on, before they turn up knocking on the door saying, I've got a stress fracture, if you can pick them up before that, then obviously that's proactive. That's the way to go, isn't it? So that was the, yeah. the point of doing that survey. Yeah, and I guess that, that's when it starts to become really interesting when you're observing this one way or the other and you're starting to see disordered eating or is it eating disorders? And, oh. you know, how does one view that? And I guess, again, as people who are in a privileged position to be there with these people and have the responsibility of helping or pushing them a certain direction – is a pretty important thing in my view, but it's a difficult area, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's a recent paper from uh, Australia, exactly that sliding, that spectrum, clinical spectrum of disordered eating to eating disorder. Hmm. I mean, an eating disorder is a bit like the unintentional, intentional reds. Eating hmm. disorder, I mean, I'm not saying it's super clear cut, but there are strict, uh, you know, DSM criteria. This is how you diagnose an eating disorder, blah, 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 ticket, sort of tick, and that's them. But, you know, people with REDS don't necessarily have an eating disorder like that that would meet those clinical criteria. There's, like you say, the step, sort of the amber area, the disordered eating, which isn't necessarily exact, hasn't got these strict clinical criteria. So in that case, those are the ones that typically are avoiding, in my experience, avoiding carbohydrates. I don't know, they've got such a bad press. Anyway, you know, orthorexia. So it's like when you talk to someone, it's like, well, just give me an outline of what you're eating through the day. And literally, it's like there's hardly any carbohydrate in there at all. So that's what I mean by disordered eating. So, you know, putting out a whole food group like that or, you know, very typically sort of, you know, well, just really reducing overall. So reducing food groups, but also reducing overall and avoiding certain things. It's like, oh, my goodness, I could never even contemplate that. Or, you know, fueling around training is often an issue I don't particularly like faster training, especially in someone that's on the cusp of reds, that sure as hell going to push them into reds, you know, or not fueling after the training as well. So I think the thing about, this is a slight tangent, the thing about carbohydrate, the story there is that, you know, having worked in the NHS for way too many years, including some diabetic clinics, it's true. 
if a, an overweight type two diabetic comes in who hates exercise, doesn't want to exercise, you know, loves chocolate and whatever, yes, of course, I'll be saying to that person, well, actually, I think we just need to have a go a little bit easy on your carbohydrate intake. And after all, we have got an obesity epidemic. So mm. that's fair enough. I'm not saying, you know, but in these specific groups that we're talking about, athletes and dancers are at risk already of reds who they're hardly, you know, they need carbohydrate, they absolutely need carbohydrate, as you know, for the high intensity output of exercise. Those are the real sort of warning signs of the disordered eating, which in itself can lead to reds. And of course, I guess it could also go on to become a full-blown eating disorder. But I think that's also an important thing to clarify. You don't have to have a full-blown eating disorder, lots of misconceptions. Oh, I can't have reds. I haven't got an eating disorder. Yeah. You know, it's like, yes, but you're only eating, you know, a couple of lettuce leaves a day. You know what I mean? And okay, your weight is stable, but that's because your metabolic rate is dialed down. So yeah, you have to be a little bit circumspect about those details. Yeah, that's why I feel there are some translational issues, which I think we need to spend some more time on when becoming aware of the language we use in science and the language we use in practice. There are some issues there, for example, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that is, you know, we eat food, we don't eat macros, we don't eat calories, mm -hmm. we don't no, eat no. carbohydrates. So when we talk about I'm cutting out carbs. What does that even mean? Because you're. Yes, I know, you're, I know. Well, that, yeah, it's complicated, it's isn't it? Well, but yeah, quite exactly. And macros don't even get me started. I mean, like, <laughs> um, nutrition, that's obviously not my area of specialization, yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. But nevertheless, from what my understanding of it yeah. is that, yeah, it's fraught yeah. with misunderstandings. And yeah. also, as just a little bit of fun, my husband, for a few days, he used. Am I allowed to mention a product? He. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he used a tracking thing for food. I'll leave it as that, right? Okay. Okay. An app. Anyway, so he used that. And I tell you what, after just a day or two, he drove not only himself mad, he drove us mad. <laughs> because it's like, oh, no, 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 we, you know, yeah. okay, my son made the dinner, let's sit down. Today. Oh, no, no, I've got to measure this and that. And blah, 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 blah. it's like, for goodness sake. Mm. I mean, if you, I mean, he's not at all any signs of disordered eating, suffice to say. You know, yeah. he's, a, he's a master cyclist. But I'm sure that after using that for a couple of days, you could easily become one. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not a master cyclist. Well, I mean, you know, obsessed and just develop some disordered eating. And I'm not sure how great those... No, but that's a good point because what I see in practice is people's use of tools and technologies that they believe to be accurate. And yes. they might be if they even knew how to use them. But, you know, one of the biggest issues we have in nutritional or dietetics practice is this business of, you know, self-reported sort of food diaries and, you know, perceived skill, which they most definitely usually don't have, is their ability to identify a portion size or or whatever. So yes. you start inputting this stuff into these these apps for tracking food and the reality is you're quite a way off and that obviously is an area which could lead you into energy deficiency yeah, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. you might Even think you're consuming intentionally it's because the yeah. algorithms in those things yeah i mean they might be accurate for some theoretical thing but yeah. is it relevant right. for you when also the practitioner the nutritionist might be recommending you know a number of calories per day that that person should be consuming without truly understanding what the energy needs of that individual are yeah. and you combine that with the 
the athletes or the clients or the patients inability to actually measure quantify what it is they're doing and that mismatch is a massive gap which is your you know is your energy deficiency potentially that line in the sand is pretty big potentially yeah so speaking of the sorts of people that do like to do that sort of thing and we won't go down the sort of the physique athlete path i don't know how much you enjoy that area so i've done some research in that area they can be very into that but another one is cyclists and you've done a number of studies on cyclists a bit like you have with the dancers and your questionnaires and so on what did you find what's interesting about cyclists as it relates to energy deficiency risks what did your studies find and what should we take home from that work that you've done well i decided to do cyclists i have to admit slightly for personal reasons because my husband like i mentioned is a mm. master cyclist and my eldest son is a, a cat one racer and a mm. cycle coach so you know i hear there's a lot of talk cycling talk in the house shall we say yeah and also so that was the reason for cyclists and the other reason is males it, this was these were male cyclists because mm. you know males hadn't had so much research done and the interesting thing about cyclists is that i'm talking about road cyclists mm-hmm. track cyclists they go round and round in a circle that's very simplified <laughs> they go round and round in a circle at the same level so the main thing they have to overcome is aerodynamic drag so it's all about yeah. the position and the fancy bike and the yeah. you know a lot massive so, legs um whereas yeah. the road cyclists if you've been watching back-to-back tour and Giro and Vuelta on the TV, you'll see they have to climb up some steep things, right? And everybody, not the whole of the peloton, you know? It's not just, oh, when people talk about sprinters, it's like, yes, but they still have to get themselves up those mountains. Anyway, so road cycling, you're always going to have an element of gravity to overcome, especially if you're doing those sort of races. And so that's when you know, potentially those cyclists can be at risk of reds. And you mentioned James Morton earlier, and of course he's working with Team Sky as it was. And, mm. you know, if it's fine if you're under someone like James Morton, who's really knows, obviously, an expert, and will keep them, you know, lean and light, but with sufficient energy on board. But the problem is that the amateur cyclist watches these grand tours on the TV, wants to emulate through Metal, and thinks, oh, well, the way I can win, I can do better is by not eating so much. Mm. If only it were that easy. <laughs> yeah. We'd all be winning the tours. And so that's what the studies that I did to look at, what is the incidence of low energy availability in male cyclists and correlating using a, the questionnaire thing I mentioned in a clinical interview and then correlating that to their measurements of bone mineral density on a DEXA and a couple of blood tests, see what's going on. And actually, the findings were quite scary. That's, you know, half of them pretty much had low bone mineral density. I mean, you could say, okay, it's a non-weight-bearing sport, but nevertheless, that's aggravated by the fact under fueling, we know the lumbar spine is particularly affected because it's trabecular bone. And also the other thing is that cyclists, and I know this, I can definitely say this, cyclists are either on their bike or on the sofa or in the car. They don't really particularly like doing <laughs> loaded exercise. So again, they are at risk of poor brain health from that point of view. So that was the point of the study to see, get a picture of what's going on. And then the second part of the study is what do we do about it? So I divided the cyclists into two groups, matched them on their bone mineral density into one lot. I said, fine, go away, do your thing that you do normally for the race season. And for the other group, it's like, please, can you 
fuel like this? Can you eat a bit more carbs, especially around training? Can you do these exercises during the week, three times a week, just some exercises? And when they came back, the interesting thing was the ones that had taken the education advice, they improved their bone mineral density. Conversely, the ones that I said, said, just do your own thing, doing your own thing in a lot of them was actually going into default mode for the race season, which was to eat less. Mm. And of course, they're racing. So actually, they lost bone density, the same amount that you would an astronaut in space over just six months. So that's pretty scary. So those and in short space of time. And also the actual crucial bit of the findings from that study, which cyclists were particularly the take home message for the cyclists was that the ones who were under fueling and going into default mode and losing bone density, they also didn't perform as well as the others. They didn't win so many racing points, BC race points. I mean, I know racing, there's always, an, like you say, an element of luck and whatever, but still over the whole season, yeah. it was surprising. It, there was a significant difference that those that were under fueling, you know, just weren't getting the winning race points or weren't performing as much. And so that actually is the crucial message for the athlete. I think if we're going to sum all of this up is that, you know, it's the performance can suffer in the long term. And that's hopefully also the motivator for them to change their behaviours. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess another mini sum up of it is short-term gain, maybe long-term pain, likely. You know, a lot of them are all about the strategy of their training and and so on. And I guess if if they did have a gadget on their uh, handlebars that showed them not just things like critical power and where they are on a map, but if they had little dials that said your bone density is going down and your fuel, you know, is going in the wrong way and so on, obviously they would look at this differently. But until such a time, we have to think a bit more about about these things. Wow, what a fantastic conversation we've had, Nikki. I personally have really enjoyed that and I'm sure the listeners will have done so i will make sure that i add various things that we've talked about such as papers and resources including the british association of sport and exercise medicine resources that you've contributed to i'll make sure that's all linked in the show yeah. notes of this yeah just to mention that that's yeah. um an educational website called healthful performance yeah and i wrote that with contributions from colleagues and it's information yeah. for athletes coaches parents healthcare professionals to go and check, you know, all the things. Basically, it's a thing or everything we've been talking about to a certain extent. And also, I try and keep it up to date with new papers and webinars and podcasts and that sort of thing. So that's probably a very good starting point. It's on my computer, on my favorites tab. Mickey, I use it as a resource for practice all the time. So I'll definitely link to that. I know some of the listeners will be keen to follow you and your work. I know you've got a website and you're on social media. Perhaps you could just tell the listeners how they can find you on those channels. Yeah, I've got a, my website is nikkfitness.com and um, yeah, all the various social media things. Although I'm not, I have to say, I'm not that flash hot about social media to be absolutely honest with you. I have it. But, you know, <laughs> the best way to get contact with me is the old-fashioned email. I'm more likely to see that right. than social media. I'm, I have it, but I'm just yeah. warning you, I'm not, you know. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. I'm, I have a similar relationship with social media. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future when there's cool. more on this topic. So for everyone listening, you can get all that information from the podcast website, which you can access via the podcast tab at our main website, which is www.theiopn.com. 
the Institute Performance Nutrition's website, where you can also access a variety of other podcasts on this theme of relative energy deficiency, which I will also link to this podcast, as well as all the other things that we get up to at the IOPN. But I shall leave it at that, and everyone can get back on their bicycles and go and do hours of, of <laughs> well fueled, Well fueled beforehand. Well fueled. So yes, thank you, Nikki. I am Laurel Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode of We Do Science back to you all very soon. Take care, everyone.